Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. What do you think of Jesus? Do you think of Jesus as Savior? Do you think of Jesus as Lord and Savior? Do you think of him as Son of God? Do you think of him as Son of Man? Is he the Christ? the Messiah whom God has sent, the Anointed One, upon whom rests our salvation. Has he, in your mind, earned the right to be your Lord? This morning, we're going to be taking a look at how we think. How we think. We're going to explore a little bit, biblically, not philosophically, to explore the mind. To explore the mind and how we think. Because it has a bearing on what we do, how we live, the decisions that we make, what we become, everything else with regard to our life is determined by how we think, what we think. Why is it difficult? for Christians to maintain joy and unity in the Holy Spirit. Why is it difficult for Christians to maintain joy and unity in the Holy Spirit? Why do we often struggle with Jesus Christ and with each other in our lives and in church? Why is it so difficult to surrender to God's sovereign authority over our lives and his perfect will in our lives? The Apostle Paul says it has to do with our mind. It has to do with how we think about Jesus about ourselves, and about our relationship to Jesus. So I want you to turn in Philippians chapter 2, if you will. Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 11, but we'll only focus our attention this morning on verse 5. Philippians chapter 2, and we will read the entire pericope verses 5 
through 11. Stand with me, if you will, please, in the honor of God's Word. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is the word of God and we pray his blessing upon the reading of the word. You may be seated. This text, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, is known as the kenosis of Christ. The kenosis of Christ. It comes from a single Greek word. The idea of the kenosis comes from a single Greek word in verse 7. The Greek word is kenao. And it's translated in um, some versions of the Bible as made of no reputation. Made of no reputation. Four words in the English, a single word in the Greek language. In the English Standard Version of the Bible, God's Word, the New English Translation, the New American Standard Bible, the Revised Standard Bible, and the American, uh, the, uh, American Standard Bible, it's translated emptied or emptied himself. That may be how it reads in the text that you're reading this morning. But it's more accurately translated in the New Living Testament, or the New Living Translation, that he gave up divine privileges. He gave up divine privileges. Or he set aside the privileges of deity. That's how it reads in the Message Bible. And that's a more accurate translation of kenao, kenosis. Now, the kenosis of Christ refers to the mystery, and it is a mystery, still a mystery. It is a truth that has yet to be fully understood by us. I don't think we'll really understand it until we get uh, into the presence of our Lord and we can spend all eternity talking to Him about it. But we understand certain things about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, but we don't fully understand all that was involved in the mystery of His incarnation. So, kenosis, it refers to the mystery of the Incarnation when the Son of God became the Son of Man. And it answers the question, to what extent was Jesus divine when He became human? To what extent was He divine 
when he became human. Now I'm sure you figured all of that out in your own mind, in your own theology, and you probably have a very quick answer to all of that and good for you. But I haven't. And I haven't really talked with anybody who has completely, fully figured out all of the dynamics involved when the Son of God became the Son of Man. Now, just a very brief recap here. Our text, this passage that we just read, our text is found in the context of Paul's explanation of what it means for a church to experience unity in the Holy Spirit. It's embedded in chapter 2 where Paul talks about what it means to have unity in the fellowship of the saints. And that is embedded in the context of what it means for the individual Christian to experience joy in his or her life. That was in chapter 1. And the theme of the entire book of Philippians, as we've stated before and we'll state it again now, the book of Philippians has to deal with Christian joy. Paul continues to address this principle of Christian joy from a number of different angles throughout the book of Philippians. And he begins by stressing the importance of having joy as a Christian in your own personal life. And he says that first, he addresses that first because he understands, as we should understand, unless there is joy in the Christian's life, there will not be joy in the Christian church. Because the Christian church is made up of Christians. So if Christians are not experiencing joy in the Lord in their own personal life, then the church is not going to experience it either. So, we must have joy in the Lord. That is, that is one of the uh, attributes of a dynamic Christian life. That's one of the characteristics of a dynamic Christian life. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit, according to the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5, that Christians are to have joy. That's the evidence of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. And the Christian church is supposed to experience joy in the Lord as well. And in order for me to have joy in the Lord, and in order for the church to have joy in the Lord, we have to address how we think about things. Because here in, in the middle of his argument with regard to joy in the church, he says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So he's telling us, in order for this joy to be ours, to be our experience, there has to, we have to address how we think about things. The apostle used verses 5 through 11, this kenosis passage, as an illustration or as an example of the mindset 
that we as Christians are to have inside the church, outside the church, in our homes, in our businesses, in our communities, wherever we gather with people or if we're by ourselves, this mindset needs to be evident in our lives. And the example, the illustration, is that of Jesus Christ himself. So, the first thing that we need to look at this morning is, what is the mind? Now, I'm not going to be asking for personal opinions, because you may very well say that, well, I know some people who don't have a mind, or I know some folks who've lost their mind, but that's not what we're talking about. What is the biblical concept of the mind. When Paul says, let this mind be in you, what is he talking about? What is that thing that he is focusing our attention on in the text? Well, in Baker's Bible Dictionary, which you all should have a Bible Dictionary if you don't have one, you probably need to uh, do yourself a favor and, and purchase a Bible dictionary. Baker's is one of them. It's highly reputable. I refer to it quite often. Baker's Bible dictionary says, quote, The mind refers to that part of the human being in which thought takes place. Well, that's a no-brainer, right? The mind is that part of the human being in which thought takes place. And perception and decisions to do good or evil and everything like it come into expression. It is that place in the human being where thoughts good or evil and everything else in between come into expression. Now, in the Old Testament, and I don't know if you've ever struggled with this, but in the Old Testament, it seems like the mind was located in the heart. I don't know if you've ever read uh, in your Old Testament and it, and it talked about thinking in one's heart. In Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 7, the scripture says, As a man, as he as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. As he thinks in his heart, so is he. And that's kind of a strange concept for us out here in the West because we don't think with our heart, we think with our brain. And so, is there something that we might be missing biblically, spiritually, theologically? Uh, when we read in the Old Testament that these folks thought with their heart. But it doesn't stop there. In Job chapter 32 and verse 8, thoughts are also a part of the spirit of a person. But there is a spirit in man, and the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. There is a spirit within man, and the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. You have an understanding in your spirit. But it doesn't stop there either. In Proverbs chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, 
Thoughts are also relegated to the soul. The, that part of you that's really you. You are not just a physical body. You are a soul. God created you a living soul. That's the real you. But in Proverbs 2 verses 10 and 11, Solomon writes, When wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, discretion will preserve you, understanding will keep you. When wisdom enters your heart, knowledge is pleasant to your soul, discretion will preserve you, understanding will keep you. So in the Old Testament, the Hebrew people thought of the heart, thought of the spirit, thought of the soul as the center of understanding. Knowledge, wisdom, understanding. They believed that the mind resided there. And I scratched my head over that many, many years ago and tried to figure out why it was that way. And I I came to the conclusion that for the Hebrew people, they, rega- they relegated uh, wisdom, knowledge, understanding to the heart, to the spirit, and to the soul because they saw a person as comprised of these three elements, these three um, parts to their being. They represent the inner man or the inner woman. That which is most important to us resides within us. Just like we think of the brain as residing within the skull, the heart, the spirit, the soul resides within the being. And that's where a person thinks. That's where a person understands. But in the New Testament, we come to a different concept of mind, even though most of the New Testament was written by Jewish people who still held the concept of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding being in the heart, being in the spirit, being in the soul, they they do not speak of it as such. They, 56 times in the New Testament, they refer to one's reason and intellect and understanding, not necessarily where it resides, but that it is. It is. Intellect is intellect. Wisdom is wisdom. Knowledge is knowledge. Understanding is understanding. And they don't really talk about where it resides. They just state that it exists within the person. The Apostle Paul used it in reference to a person's perspective. A person's attitude, a person's mindset, a person's disposition or moral persuasion. And that's that's how we're to understand it here in Philippians 2 and verse 5. It is the mindset, it is the attitude, it is the moral persuasion that we have within us. Whether you want to say it's in your mind or in your heart or in your spirit or in your soul, it doesn't really matter. It just is. That's, that's what it is. And it exists within you. In Romans chapter 1, verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. The word debased means to be depraved. It means to be worthless. 
to have a depraved mind, a debased or a worthless mind to do the things which are not fitting. In other words, to do the things which are unacceptable to God. In Ephesians 4, verses 17 and 18, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. And here the reference to Gentiles are lost folks, sinful folks, ungodly folks, worldly people, in the futility of their mind. And here the word futility means the emptiness and the moral depravity of the mind. Having their understanding darkened or blinded. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, the unknowing of God, the not willing to understand God, the not willing to seek out after God. This ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Because of the blindness of the heart. Here Paul in Ephesians 4 retains the idea, the Jewish idea, that knowledge and wisdom and understanding resides in the heart. But not necessarily to exclude the brain. He's talking about the blindness, the stupidity or the callousness that resides in the heart of a person, in their thoughts as well as in their feelings. I'm sure you've had people who've responded to you when you've tried to share the gospel with them. You, know, you want to talk about Jesus? I don't want to know about Jesus and I don't care to know about Jesus. Here they're combining the same concept. The mind with the feelings, the emotions. I don't want to know and I don't care to know. The Apostle Paul is doing the same thing here in Ephesians 4. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, Let no one cheat you out of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which, has not seen, which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. The mind that is focused in on uh, the unspiritual, the carnal, and the sinful desires of the person. And not holding fast to the head, which is Jesus Christ from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints, ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. So Paul addresses the mind in a number of different ways, but basically he's saying there are two things about the mind we need to understand. The mind is either lost, ungodly, sinful of the flesh and worldly, or the mind is godly and holy and pure and thinking of the things uh, that are uh, of God and his kingdom. In other words, your mind cannot be neutral with regard to the things of God. You either accept it in your mind or you reject it in your mind. You either follow after it, you pursue it in your mind, or you ignore it in your mind. Paul is very clear that the mind and the heart, the emotions, are attached, a unique attachment uh, in the person because the person will think about the things that he wants to, he desires to think about. And so in order for the emotions to change, the, uh, the attitudes have to change. In order for the affections to be, uh, become godly, then the attitudes have to become godly. And Jesus 
basically believed the same thing because in the Sermon on the Mount, before he ever talked about our actions and our affections, he talked about our attitudes. We call those verses in the beginning of chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes, because he addresses the attitudes. And what he is saying here is, before we can even begin to address the way we act and the affections that we have, we have to address the attitudes of our mind. The reason it's difficult for Christians to experience unity in the Holy Spirit, the reason why we struggle with Jesus Christ and with each other in the church, and the reason why it's difficult to surrender to God's sovereign authority over our lives is because we do not think correctly. We do not think as we should. We think like the world, not like Jesus Christ. Our thoughts are often controlled by our desires and not by the Holy Spirit. We think like we did before we were saved rather than how we should think because we are saved. And so we're going to explore how this transition takes place. And we can't get into all of it. Time doesn't permit. But we can address a couple of things because Paul outlines them here in the Kenosis passage. The second thing we need to take a look at is before we're saved, we had the mind of a lost person. And that has to be acknowledged. We had the mind of a lost person. We were spiritually blinded by Satan. Our mind was closed to the glory, to the majesty, to the sovereignty, to the salvation, to the will, and to the purposes of God. Now that we are saved, we have spiritual understanding. We have a spiritual mind. We have a redeemed mind. Look at what he says here in verses 5 and following. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made of himself no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming into the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself, and we'll talk about the humble mind here in a moment. He humbled himself and became obedient. We'll talk about the obedient mind here in a moment. He became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and given him the name, which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow both in heaven and on earth, and that everyone would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We have to address how we think. We are Christian people if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But you may not always think like a Christian ought to think. You may not always have the mind of Christ at any given moment. I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 5. Turn right to 1 John chapter 5 and I want you to look at the things that we know or the things that we should know as a Christian. 1 John chapter 5 and I want you to look at verses 18 through 20. 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. 
These are the things that we, as Christians, should know. Now, by the way, from time to time, an individual will ask, well, how do I know if I really am a Christian or not? How do I know if I'm not deceiving myself and thinking that I am a Christian when in reality I'm not a Christian? Well, you need to study 1 John. Because in 1 John, the Apostle gives us at least five tests that an individual needs to take that will help him understand where he stands with Jesus Christ. Five things that you need to examine in your own heart and in your own mind to see whether or not you truly are saved or if you're just self-deceived. And so at the end of 1 John, he concludes by saying, these are the things that we should know. These are the things that we are to know as a Christian. He first of all says, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. Whoever is born of God does not sin, and we know this. Now you may very well say, say, you may very well say, hey, wait a minute, you know, I, I do sin, so I must not be born of God. I must not be a Christian because I do sin from time to time. Well, the word here, sin, is in the present active indicative. It's a participle, and it means to continue to sin. Sin is a lifestyle. The individual who continues to rebel against God, the individual who continues to ignore the commandments of God, the individual who continues to walk away from the teachings of Jesus Christ, and they, they have structured their life in such a way that the Word of God has no part in who they are, how they think, what they do, that uh, spiritual life is not really uh, something that they're concerned about, that uh, Jesus Christ is no one uh, that's a big deal in their life. Lives. They continue to sin. They, they don't care about what God says. They don't care about what Jesus says. They don't care about the witness of the Holy Spirit. That individual is not born of God. It is a continual sinning against God. A lifestyle of sin against God. That individual may say he is a Christian, but his life disproves his testimony. I know from time to time when I talk to individuals who come uh, asking if I would perform a funeral, I always meet with the family and we sit down and we talk about the individual who is deceased. And we, uh, one of the questions that I always ask is, was the individual a Christian? And it's amazing how many people will respond, well, they went to church. And in my mind I say, well, that doesn't answer the question. Does this individual, did this individual know Jesus Christ personally? And yet, in the minds of most people, they equate being a Christian with going to church. That's not what the Apostle John says. We know that we're born of God not because we go to church. We know that we're born of God because we stopped living a lifestyle of sin. We know that. Why? Because that's what the Bible teaches. And that should be the evidence in a Christian's life. If you're truly saved, if you know Jesus Christ, you'll know that your lifestyle has changed. And that lifestyle has changed from one of perpetual sin to the desire for holiness and righteousness. He goes on to say, We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself. 
The individual structures, allows the Holy Spirit to structure in his life boundaries, perimeters. He keeps himself. That means he disciplines himself to stay away from the things that are sinful. One occasion the Apostle Paul talked about lust of the flesh and expressing the lusts of the flesh. He said, flee from it. Flee from it. It's like Joseph who was sold into slavery by his brothers and he became the headmaster, or not the headmaster, but he became uh, the supervisor of all that went on in Potiphar's house. And Potiphar's wife had a thing for Joseph. And she propositioned him all the time. And one time she grabbed a hold of his coat and was going to force him to go to bed with her. And scripture says he ran, left his coat behind. This is a part of keeping oneself, setting up boundaries, establishing perimeters in an individual's life so that sin can be properly dealt with. He keeps himself. We know that he keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. That's an entire sermon right there. We know that we are of God. We know that we are of God. We know that we are of God. I know there are far too many Christians who doubt whether or not they're saved. But John is saying here, through all that he stated in this book, this first uh, John letter, when you come to the end of it, you know if you're of God or not. We know that we're of God. And the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. We know that as well. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding. He has changed our minds. He has dealt with our thinking that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. These are the things that we know as Christians, that we didn't know when our mind was worldly. We have such a mind because Jesus Christ has been made, has made a new creation out of us. He has made us a new creation, a new person with a new mind. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 14 through 17, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died and he died for all. That those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You are a new creature in Christ. Amen. You are a new person in Christ. He has recreated you from the inside out. You do not think the same way you did before Christ. You do not act the same way that you did before Christ. You do not live the way the same way that you did before Christ. How do we know this? Because scripture tells us in Christ we have been recreated. We're also told in the book of Romans chapter 8 
that those whom God has foreknown, he is predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That is the sanctification aspect of uh, our lives. He continues moment by moment, day by day, to rid us of the worldliness and to implant within us godliness and righteousness that we might reflect more and more the life of Jesus Christ. Third, before we were saved, we had the mind of a worldly person. In Christ Jesus, we have a renewed mind. We have a renewed mind, a renovated mind, a progressively transformed and upgraded way of thinking. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. You know the passage very well. The Apostle Paul writes, I beseech you, I implore you, I plead with you. Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Renovating the way we think. Renewing the way we think. Transforming the way we think. Recently, Nancy and I remodeled our kitchen. And there were some things I learned from the remodeling process that have to do with renovating our mind as well. The first thing that I learned that you have to decide to do it. You have to decide to do it. If you want to think a new way, you have to decide to think a new way. If you're going to remodel your kitchen, you have to decide to remodel your kitchen. And we've been thinking about it for years. Getting tired of the cabinets, the color, getting tired of the countertops and the tile and all this other kind of stuff. We wanted to remodel the kitchen. So we thought about it, we talked about it, and then we finally decided that we were going to do it. Second thing, it takes a plan. You don't just go into the kitchen with a hammer and start wailing away on the tile. You'll knock holes in the sheetrock behind the tile. Didn't I, Mark? You know, you've got to have a plan. Where are you going to start? How are you going to carry this thing through? What goes first? What goes second? You can't do this until you do that. You've got to have the plan all set out. Third, it takes time. We started the process in September. And we finished it the week before Christmas. It takes time. It takes sacrifice. It takes changing, altering your lifestyle. We ate out of the garage for a while. Because that's where the microwave was. That's where the crock pot was. We couldn't use anything in the kitchen because it was all torn apart. So we had to change the way we went about doing things, particularly as preparing of foods. It takes getting rid of some things. And I know you've done this. You've opened up cabinets. You've opened up 
cupboards, you've opened up closets, and you found things in there that you didn't think you had, that you thought you'd gotten rid of in a yard sale, or that somehow, you know, you just lost track of them. We opened up cupboards. Oh, that's where that was all this time. I hadn't used them in years. And I said, well, do you want to get rid of it? No, just put them back up there. <laughs> you got to get rid of things that you don't use, that are useless to you. But as Jesus told of the individual who the demon was cast out of him and he didn't take care of his life and the demon came back with seven others stronger than him and repossessed. You have to do the same thing in your mind. You have to do the same thing in your spiritual life. Those unnecessary, those evil, those sinful, those wicked, those worldly, those fleshly things that you're getting rid of, you have to replace with godly things. You have to replace with holy things. You have to replace with spiritual things or those old attitudes will come right back and take root again in your life. It takes discarding things and replacing things. Above all, it takes work. It takes work. And the same thing is true in the renewing of one's mind. Now, when you, take a li when you listen to what Paul is saying, he said, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. That's something that you do. That's something that I do. And it takes work. It takes planning. It takes decisions. It takes sacrifice. It takes altering your lifestyle. It takes getting rid of things that are useless and not in accordance with God's plan and will for your life. It takes putting things into your life that are in accordance with God's will and God's plan for your life. It takes work. Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. If then, and here it is a first class conditional sentence, since then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. You have to determine to do this, and then you have to di discipline your life to do this. It has to be a, a willful decision, and it has to be determined in your mind to follow through, to seek the things that God would have you place in your heart and in your mind. The key to a transformed life is a renewed mind, according to Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. A mind that has been made new because it's been redeemed. For before we were saved, we had a mind that was closed. A mind that was closed to God and to the things of God, blinded by the power of Satan. But since we've come to faith in Jesus Christ, our mind has been opened to the things of God, His salvation, His kingdom, His grace, mercy, and love, His forgiveness, His will and purpose for our lives. We've become open to those things now that God has opened our mind. In Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 32, after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to two disciples that were leaving Jerusalem and going home to Emmaus. And as they were walking down the road to their home in Emmaus, Jesus appeared and started talking with them. And they were talking with him, but they didn't know who he was. They didn't recognize him. Their mind 
was closed. Like a lot of the other disciples, they believed Jesus was crucified. They saw it. They heard it. But the resurrection of Jesus, mm, no. They didn't really believe that Jesus would be raised from the dead. Their minds were closed to that. And so he continued to walk with them. And they invited him to come into their house and to have supper with them. And he did. He sat at supper with them. But it was only when he broke bread at the table that their eyes were opened and they recognized who he was. And he disappeared. The same was true with the group of disciples. Afterward, as these two disciples ran back into town and found all the other disciples and began to tell them their experience with Jesus in Luke 24, verses 36 to 45, as they gathered together to hear the testimony of these two disciples, Jesus appeared in the midst of them and they didn't recognize him. They didn't know it was him. They thought he was a ghost until he showed them the nail-pierced hands, until he showed them his nail-scarred feet. And then he asked for something to eat, a piece of fish and some honey. And Luke wrote in verse 45, he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. It's dangerous to have a closed mind. It's dangerous to have an open mind. A closed mind will not allow new understanding to come in. It will not appreciate the discovery of new things. An open mind without discernment is a dangerous thing as well because this mind will allow anything and everything to come in. We need to be discerning. We need to have an open mind, but we need to be discerning about the things that we are exposed to. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from a child you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We need to be open to that. All Scripture, the whole counsel of God, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well, not just our favorite passages of Scripture, not, the one, not, not just the ones that give us comfort and peace, but the ones that also challenge us in our understanding of God and of the Christian life. Only when the mind is redeemed, renewed, restored, can we even begin to know God and the things of God. Let me give you one more, and then we'll close. Before we were saved, we had the mind of a fallen humanity. We had the mind of a fallen humanity. 
In salvation, we now have the mind of Christ. And that takes us back to where we began. In chapter 2, verse 5, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to have the mind of Christ? In the kenosis, three things become very clear. Notice what he says in Philippians 2, 5 and following. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, same essence, same character, same nature, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, not Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They were equal, and they are equal. Thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Now, this speaks of a humble mind. It speaks of a humble mind. Equal with God? The same essence of God? And yet when he became human, he had to embrace a humble mind. And we see that in Jesus Christ. He was humble. Not only in his actions, but he was humble in his thinking. His mind was a humble mind. It was devoid of egotism and arrogance. It's a mind that doesn't hold to elevated status or the glorified recognition of others. Jesus didn't walk around with his thumbs under his arms like a banny rooster and say, look at me, I am the Son of God, watch what I can do. I can heal the sick, I can raise the dead, I can do this. Whatever you need, I can provide it. No, he wasn't arrogant. He was humble in his heart and in his mind. John chapter 8 verse 29, Jesus said, He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do. I always do those things that please Him. A humble mind does not please self. A humble mind always seeks to please God. We live in a religious world. I'm sorry to say, we live in a religious world where priests and rabbis and pastors and ministers seek the recognition of others rather than the recognition of God. They aspire to titles and positions and stations that garner the praise and the glory of the world rather than to bring honor and glory and praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. They lay up treasures for themselves here in the earth and they do not lay up treasures for the kingdom of God, but not Jesus. Jesus emptied himself. Jesus set aside. He divested himself of all that would have elevated him or robbed God the Father of his glory and honor and majesty. Now this doesn't mean that Jesus ceased being God. And it doesn't mean that he exchanged all that he was as God for all that he became in man. It doesn't mean that at all. What it does mean is that he willingly set aside certain aspects of his divinity, certain aspects of his deity, in order to be clothed in human flesh. Just one thing, very simply. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. The psalmist said, I, I have 
ascended to the highest heaven and I found you there. I've descended into the lowest hell and I found you there. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. But Jesus wasn't. Jesus could not be everywhere. So he had divested certain aspects of his divinity when he, clothed, when he was clothed in human flesh. He set aside the rights and the privileges and the honors that were his as the Son of God. He surrendered being face to face with the Father when he became a man. He left the praise and the worship of the angels. He gave up the safety and the security of the heavenly kingdom to be exposed to the ravages of a sinful world when he became man. He willingly hid his glory as the Son of God so that it could not be seen unless he willingly pulled back the veil of the flesh and allowed certain individuals to see his glory, the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, and then those who saw him after the resurrection. He gave up his independent authority for the Father's authority. He gave up his will for the Father's will. In John 5, verse 30, I, can my, I of myself can do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Matthew 26, verse 39, Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, O Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. This is what it means to have the mind of Christ, to surrender your will to the Father's will, to surrender your desires to the Father's desires, to have a humble mind. But there is a second thing, taking the form of a bondservant, he says here, and coming in the likeness of men. He left the lordship that was his in heaven to become a slave here in the earth. That's what a bondservant is. It's a slave. Matthew chapter 20, verses 27 to 28. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. A humble mind, a servant mind. Finally, he writes, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Jesus learned obedience. He learned obedience to his heavenly Father. At age 12, he told Mary and Joseph in Luke, 20, Luke chapter 2, verse 49, Why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Even at age 12, he understood obedience to the Father. John chapter 9, verse 4, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no man can work. And John chapter 15, verse 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments. An obedient mind, a humble mind, a servant mind. This is the mind of Christ. And this is what the Apostle Paul would have us to understand. If there is going to be joy in your Christian life, you must have the mind of Christ. 
If there is going to be joy in the Christian church, the, the, the body of saints must collectively have the mind of Christ. A humble mind, a servant mind, an obedient mind. So the key, the key to experiencing joy in one's life and in one's church is to be willing to surrender the mind that you had as a lost person and embrace the mind that Christ gives you as a saved person. To truly desire to have that mind and to seek it and to work in order to obtain it. This is what the Apostle Paul is going to apply for the rest of the book of Philippians. He sets the stage here and he's going to work all of the principles out as we go through chapter 3 and through chapter 4. David, do we have a song to sing? And may we go into this week and through this new year with this in mind and the joy that we are a family of God. I'm so glad of the family of God. I've been washed in the Spirit and washed by His blood. Joined heirs with Jesus as we travel this side. Now, Father, take us from this house to the fields that are white unto harvest. May we be faithful laborers in the harvest by bringing souls into the kingdom of Christ and bringing honor and glory to your name. For it is in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, I ask. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. The Bible says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.